Thanks for checking out the site. We're into more than law and politics around here. After my rant, keep listening, and I'll introduce one of our top 50 songs of all time. I'm Royal Oaks, and this is The Royal Oaks Show. There's a big controversy over whether to ban the box. Maybe you've heard about it. The box is part of an employment application, and on the application, there's a question. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? If yes, check the box. The president thinks we should ban the box, and Hillary agrees with him, by the way. He thinks it's tough to get a job after you come out of prison and you have to fess up to a prospective employer that, well, that five-year gap on the resume was spent at the Gray Bar Hotel. Of course, as with all interesting issues, there are two sides to the coin. A lot of folks have natural sympathy for an employer who's kind of curious about the background of a job applicant. When you think about it, depriving an employer of the right to find out about an applicant's background does defy common sense. People don't have a right to a job. Employers have a right to hire anybody they want, assuming their decisions are not made on an illegal, discriminatory basis. Now, if you run a company, Ikea, or a flower shop, or a tire shop, and you don't want a rapist, or a murderer, or a child molester working for you, well, it doesn't seem like an unreasonable position. But some consider it complicated. The president's position would be, well, when you make a hiring decision based on a person's felony conviction, you're really making a racial statement. How's that, you ask? Well, if you look at the demographics of the United States, you see the racial background is about 64% white, 16% Hispanic, 12% black, and 5% Asian. Then when you open up Wikipedia, you find that the percentage of people incarcerated is a little different from those demographics. The inmate population is 32% white, 37% black, 22% Hispanic, and 2% Asian. So, the argument by the president goes, if you say no to an ex-felon, what you're doing on a societal macro basis is taking action that has a disproportionate effect on people of color. Plus, it's really, really important for these guys to get jobs, otherwise they're likely to commit more crimes and wind up back in prison. But the prospective employer has a right to say, wait a minute, those statistics are really interesting, but they refer to society in general. I acknowledge the possibility that the reason people of color have a disproportionately high share of the bunks in prison is institutional racism. But I'm dealing with a very specific issue here. A specific human being who happens to have a felony record who wants a job at my place. I don't have any idea if he was convicted because of institutional racism. And the applicant probably doesn't have any evidence that institutional racism put him behind bars. So, Even though racism may be alive and well and responsible for the disproportionate number of people of color being behind bars, that fact has nothing to do with the question of whether the employer has a legitimate basis for saying no to this particular ex-felon. Now, one solution to the problem would be to take whatever steps are necessary to curb institutional racism and thus lower the percentage of people of color who are convicted of crimes. Plus, you got a slippery slope problem here. If you're going to start withholding information from prospective employers for the purpose of helping these guys get jobs, why stop at felony convictions? Why not prevent an employer from finding out how things went at the guy's previous jobs? I mean, usually, an employer has a legitimate interest in asking, where else have you worked? Did the experiences end well? Some people are professional troublemakers. Some people who've never seen the inside of a prison cell nonetheless can't seem to get along on the job, and they get fired time after time. Maybe they're insubordinate. Maybe they get into fights with their coworkers. They may just be terrible employees. Isn't the company entitled to know 
about the person they're looking at across the desk during the job interview? Now, if it's so vitally important to make sure that people with troubled pasts get jobs, let's just make it illegal not only to ask about felony convictions, but about terminations as well. Now, should we figure out what percentage of fired people are people of color and decide, oh, you can't look at their employment records, that would lead to a disproportionate impact on some groups. It's kind of ridiculous. People who are hiring folks have a right to know who they're taking on, especially when our society is moving rapidly toward the French model, which is you've got a job for life. You want to fire somebody over in France? Good luck. It's just about unheard of. It makes firing American teachers look like moving crap through a goose. This whole ban-the-box issue is part of the president's big initiative to dump on America's system of mass incarceration. Now, the reason this issue got some publicity is that the president spent some time behind bars recently. No, I'm not talking about some parallel bizarro world universe where Gerald Ford didn't pardon Richard Nixon. You probably saw the big high-profile visit President Obama paid a couple of months ago to a federal penitentiary in Oklahoma. The president made it real clear where his sympathies were. He told the press, These are young people who made mistakes that aren't that different than the mistakes I made and the mistakes a lot of you guys made. The president's clear message was that anybody who smoked dope and tried cocaine could land in a place like the old Reno Federal Correctional Institution, as pointed out in a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal by Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute, however. The president didn't exactly get it right. It takes a whole lot more than marijuana and cocaine to wind up in federal prison. But let's not quibble. The point is, President Obama wanted to get across the clear message that the criminal justice system is rigged. It's biased against blacks and overly harsh. The Black Lives Matter movement is a new incarnation of this position. But for a long time, the left has been talking up the idea of racist mass incarceration. The president said the real reason our prison population is so high is that we lock up more and more nonviolent drug offenders than ever for longer than ever before. But let's do a fact check, courtesy again of Ms. McDonald. The state prison population, which accounts for 87% of the nation's prisoners, is dominated by violent criminals and serial thieves. In 2013, drug offenders made up less than 16% of inmates, while violent felons were 54% and property offenders were 19%. Now, in federal prisons, which only hold 13% of the nation's prisoners, drug offenders do make up half the inmate population. But they are not casual drug users. Overwhelmingly, they are serious traffickers. Under 1% of drug offenders sentenced by federal court in 2014 were convicted of simple drug possession, according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And most of these possession convictions were plea bargain deals involving trafficking offenses. So the stop mass incarceration movement also is pushing the idea that blacks are disproportionately targeted by federal drug prosecutors. The fact is Hispanics made up 48% of drug offenders sentenced in federal court two years ago. Blacks were 27% and whites 22%. Even on the state level, drug possession convictions are rare. In 2013, only 3.5% of state prisoners were doing time for drug possession, compared to 12% of prisoners convicted of trafficking. And virtually all the possession offenders had long prior arrest and conviction records. Now, the president would suggest the federal minimum sentences are excessive, but the facts show otherwise. A 10-year sentence for traffic, uh, trafficking heroin requires possession of a kilogram of heroin, which is enough for 10,000 individual doses with a street value of about 70 grand. 
Traffickers without a serious criminal history can avoid mandatory sentencing by cooperating with investigators, but often it's their choice not to do that. Folks who talk about mass incarceration always like to contrast American rates with European rates. But what they leave out of the analysis is the crime rate. The American homicide rate is seven times higher than the combined rate of 21 Western developed nations plus Japan. Plus, in contrast to the argument that our justice system is cruel and draconian, the fact is the vast majority of crime goes completely unpunished. For every 31 people convicted of a violent felony, another 69 people arrested for violence are released back to the streets. The low arrest-to-conviction rate reflects prosecutors' decisions not to go forward with the case for lack of cooperative witnesses or technical errors in police paperwork. Only 3% of violent crimes and property crimes result in an offender going to prison. A study out of Iowa State University found 27% of convicted felons in the 75 largest counties in America got community service as opposed to jail time. Take a look at New York City. It's like a science experiment for combating crime. In the mid-1990s, the New York City Police Department aggressively enforced quality-of-life laws. They stopped and questioned people engaged in suspicious behavior. Misdemeanor arrests in the city from 1990 to 2009 were up, and felony arrests and felony convictions dropped dramatically. The reasonable suspicion stops represented an even earlier intervention in potentially serious criminal behavior. When you question somebody who looks like he's casing a jewelry store in an area plagued by burglaries, you're probably preventing a subsequent break-in. And the possibility of getting stopped deters crime in the first place. I've been going to New York City on business for a long time, and I have to tell you, in the 1980s, it was like Blade Runner. It's like Escape from New York, only Kurt Russell wasn't around to help you out. It was an amazing turnaround in the 1990s. It was like traveling to a different planet. And now, talk to New Yorkers, it's all sliding back to those gruesome days of the 1980s. What we're talking about here is the, not just quality of life. Homicide in 35 large United cities this year were up by 20%. The really frustrating thing about the political attack on crime fighting and incarceration is that crime rates have fallen dramatically since their high levels of 20 or 30 years ago. And a lot of experts credit the broken windows policing and incarcerating repeat offenders. Now, in defending the Justice Department's decision to release 6,000 inmates from federal prisons starting last month, the Obama administration has tried to assure people, don't worry, only nonviolent drug offenders will be released. Well, when Los Angeles asked the RAND Corporation to identify inmates suitable for early release, the researchers looked into it and concluded almost nobody housed in the L.A. jails could be considered non-serious or simply troublesome to their local communities. They recommended, in fact, that jail capacity should be expanded to allow lengthier incarceration of the more dangerous inmates. And get this. A federal report tracked the recidivism of 91,000 supposedly nonviolent offenders in 15 states over a three-year period. Here's what they found. Over 21% wound up rearrested for violent crimes, including over 700 murders and 600 rapes. The report also noted the difficulty of identifying low-risk inmates. Auto thieves were rearrested for committing more than a third of the homicides in the study. Now, it's not to say we don't need some reforms. We should give judges more leeway in sentencing low-level offenders. That can help the problem of our increasing federal inmate population. We can also help prevent criminal acts after the release. One way to do that is to allow charter schools in prison to help inmates get a high school diploma. 
And if the president really wanted to help people get jobs, he might change a couple of his positions. He keeps pushing for higher minimum wages. A higher minimum wage is a huge factor in pricing a disproportionate percentage of people of color out of the labor force. Plus, at the urging of teachers' unions, President Obama has fought against voucher programs that give give kids whose neighborhood schools are a disaster access to better schools. These policies both have a long track record of keeping millions of people of color unemployed. There's another angle to the crime issue in California. Los Angeles has a new sheriff, Jim McDonald, and he's acknowledging that Proposition 47, passed by the voters in November 2014, is responsible for higher crime rates. Prop 47 made certain drug and property crimes misdemeanors instead of felonies. In order to ease overcrowding in the prison system, because, you know, we don't have enough money because all the important stuff we're spending our public money on, Prop 47 cut the penalties for shoplifting and forgery and fraud and petty theft and possession of small amounts of drugs, including cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines. So what's the result of Prop 47? So far in 2015... Los Angeles County saw a 3% increase in violent crime and a 7% increase in property crime. This comes after 10 straight years of crime reductions. We had been at a 50-year low when it comes to crime rates. All of a sudden, immediately after Prop 47 kicks in, that gets reversed. Again, why did we have Prop 47 in the first place? Well, it's all about money. In 2011, California passed its prison realignment law, inspired by the fact that we had no money, and what it did was to push many criminals into the county jails in order to decrease state prison populations. Before that, the jails only housed people waiting for trial and those sentenced to under a year. All of a sudden, the jails were populated by hardened criminals serving longer prison terms. So one of the goals of Prop 47 was to get people back on the street and out of the crowded jails. Los Angeles saw a 21% increase in violent crimes and an 11% increase in property crimes in the first half of 2015 compared to the same period the previous year. District attorneys around the state blame Prop 47. They say that before they were able to use the carrot and stick approach, that carrot was mandatory rehab programs and the stick was a felony conviction. After Prop 47, many drug offenses have become misdemeanors, and as a result, drug treatment became impossible to mandate and participation in the drug courts went down. So maybe we do need to get back to basics. Stop using a precious Western Europe as our ideal and... Maybe our situation will be different in terms of the crime rates. And let's not turn our back on what led to the amazing reduction in crime over the last decade or so. George Harrison's genius was unleashed when the breakup of the Beatles gave the guys the chance to shine solo. You're listening to his 1971 hit that's lived on not just on the radio. You hear it in the movies, Goodfellas and Patch Adams. Rolling Stone called it the spiritual guitar quest that became a classic. The B-side to My Sweet Lord. And number 45 on our top 50 of all time, this is George Harrison's What Is Life. What I feel
Yeah.